Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. I'm your host for today, Father Wesley Walker, and we're here to read Tract 8 of Tracts for the Times, The Gospel, A Law of Liberty, first published October 31st, 1833. The tract has been attributed to John Henry Newman, but it is also thought that Richard Hurrell Froud may have penned it. We haven't heard from Froud yet, so it might be a good day to introduce him. He was born in 1803 and died young at the age of 33. He attended Oxford, being tutored by John Keeble, whose sermon National Apostasy kicked off the Oxford movement, and who wrote Tract 4. Froud first met John Henry Newman while Newman was still a liberal, and remarked, Newman is a fellow that I like more the more I think of him. Only, I would give a few odd pence if he were not a heretic. Of course, Newman came around eventually, and Froude worked with him at the beginning of the publishing of the tracts until his death in 1836 from tuberculosis. Tract 8 has two main parts. The first is a discussion of the gospel as a law of liberty, and the second is about reforming the English church where it was amiss. So here it is, Tract 8, The Gospel, A Law of Liberty. It is a matter of surprise to some persons that the ecclesiastical system under which we find ourselves is so faintly enjoined on us in Scripture. One very sufficient explanation of the fact will be found in considering that the Bible is not intended to teach us matters of discipline so much as matters of faith, i.e. those doctrines, the reception of which are necessary to salvation. But another reason may be suggested, which is well worth our attentive consideration. The gospel is a law of liberty. We are treated as sons, not as servants, not subjected to a code of formal commands, but addressed as those who love God and wish to please him. When a man gives orders to those he thinks will mistake him or are perverse, he speaks pointedly and explicitly. But when he gives directions to friends, he will trust to their knowledge of his feelings and wishes he, he leaves much to their discretion, and tells them not so much what he would have done in detail, as what are the objects he would have accomplished. Now this is the way Christ has spoken to us under the new covenant, and apparently with this reason to try us whether or not we really love him as our Lord and Savior. Accordingly, there is no part of the ecclesiastical system which is not faintly traced in Scripture, and no part which is much more than faintly traced. The question which a reverend and affectionate faith will ask is, what is most likely to please Christ? And this is just the question that obtains an answer in Scripture, which contains just as much as intimations of what is most likely to please him. Of course, different minds will differ to the degree of clearness with which this or that practice is enjoined. Yet I think no one will consider the state of the case, as I have put it, exaggerated on the whole. Many duties are intimated to us by example, not by precept. Many are implied merely. Others can only be inferred from a comparison of passages, and others perhaps are contained only in the Jewish law. I will mention specimens to assist the reflection of the reader. The early Christians were remarkable for keeping to the apostles' fellowship, who are more likely to stand in the apostles' place since their death than that line of bishops which they themselves began. 
For that the apostles were, in some sense, or other, to remain on earth to the end of all things, is plain from the text. Lo, I am with you, etc. St. Paul set Timothy over the church at Ephesus, and Titus over the churches of Crete, i.e. as bishops. Therefore it is safer to have bishops now. It is more likely to be pleasing to him who has loved us, and bids us in turn to love him with the heart, not with formal service. Our Lord committed the administration of the Lord's Supper to his apostles. Do this in remembrance of me. Therefore the church has ever continued it in the hands of their successors and the delegates of those. On the other hand, the command to baptize was given in the presence of the disciples and so indirectly to them. And therefore the church has allowed lay baptism in cases where an ordained minister could not be obtained. From Christ's words, suffer the little children, etc., and from his blessing them, we infer his desire that children should be brought near to him in baptism, as we do also from St. Paul's conduct on several occasions, Acts 16, 15, and 33, 1 Corinthians 1, 16. So also, we continue the practice of confirmation from a desire to keep as near the apostles' rule as possible. Again, what little is there of express command in the New Testament for our meeting together in public worship? Yet we see what the custom of the apostolic church was from the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians, etc. In like manner, the words of Genesis 2 and the practice of the apostles in the Acts are quite warrant enough for the sanctification of the Lord's Day, even though the fourth commandment were not binding on us. For the same reason, we continue the patriarchal and Jewish rule of paying tithe to the church. Some portion of our goods is evidently due to God, and the ancient divine command is a direction to us in a case when reason and conscience have no means of determining. These may be taken as illustrations of a general principle, and at this day it is needful to keep it in view, since a cold spirit has crept into the church, of demanding rigid demonstration for every religious practice and observance. It is the fashion now to speak of those who maintain the ancient rules of the ecclesiastical system not as zealous servants of Christ, not as wise and practical expounders of his will, but as inconclusive reasoners and fanciful theorists, merely because, instead of standing still and arguing, they have a heart to obey. Are there not numbers in this day who think themselves enlightened believers? yet who are but acting the part of the husbandman's son in the gospel who said, I go, sir, and went not. Part 2. Church Reform Surely before the blessing of a millennium is vouchsafed to us, the whole Christian world has much to confess in its several branches. Rome has to confess her papal corruptions and her cruelty towards those who refuse to accept them. The Christian communities of Holland, Scotland, and other countries, their neglect of the apostolical order of ministers. The Greek church has to confess its saint worship, its formal fasts, and its want of zeal. The churches of Asia, their heresy. All parts of Christendom have much to confess and reform. We have our sins as well as the rest. Oh, that we would take the lead in the regeneration of the church Catholic on scripture principles. Our greatest sin, perhaps, is the disuse of a godly discipline. 
Let the reader consider, number one, the command. Put away from yourselves the wicked person, a man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition reject. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses and avoid them. Number two, the example, viz. in the primitive church. The persons or objects of ecclesiastical censure were all such delinquents as fell into great and scandalous crimes after baptism, whether men or women, priests or people, rich or poor, princes or subjects. That's from Joseph Bingham's Antiquities 16.3. The warning, number three, whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, a few closing thoughts regarding this tract from me. Uh, the first is that the law of liberty is not a hard law. It reminds me of what Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. The law of liberty means that we have a good deal of freedom in our response to God, and that that freedom gets to be exercised through real love for God, uh, not through an external demand that's placed on us in order to earn God's love. The second point, related to the first, is that not everything in Scripture is explicitly prescriptive. For example, is an Episcopal system explicitly commanded in the Bible? Well, not really, but if we extrapolate from the biblical text and the history of the church, which received the Scripture, we can deduce that it is the most pleasing form of church government to God. Just like a friend does something for another friend in a way that matches their personality and suits their likes and dislikes, so the church Catholic discerns what is most pleasing to God from the available data. Number three, Froud's argument about the need for reform in the Anglican Church on the topic of godly discipline is really important. In fact, I would go so far as to say that he's really prophetic here. One of the biggest problems in Anglicanism today is an ecclesial deficit, where bishops fail to enforce the faith as it was once handed down to us. That looks different in different areas and different jurisdictions have different problems, but fundamentally, it's the same problem. It's a strong reminder to us that we ought to pray for our bishops regularly, that they would always protect the body of Christ in meeting out necessary discipline. Well, if you like what we're doing here at The Sacramentalist, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and share us with your friends. If you want to continue the conversation with us, join our Facebook group and let us know what you think. You can email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalists at gmail.com. The peace of God which passeth all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.